Good evening, everyone. Welcome to UX Indonesia Meetup. Uh, my name is Yuni Sari, and this is Jos Aditya Saputra. We are the host for tun- uh, tonight's meetup. Uh, we are privileged to introduce you Dr. Lian Loke and Dr. Martin Tomic from the University of Sydney. So, Dr. Loke and Dr. Tomic are both co-authors of the book of uh, Design Think, Make, Break, Repeat which includes 60 design methods along with exercise, case studies, and online resources. Both are associate professors in the design lab at the University of Sydney School of Architecture, Design, and Planning, where they, te- they teach UX and interaction design. Lian is the program director of the Master of Interaction Design and Electronic Arts while Martin is the head of the design discipline and director of innovation at the University's of Education portfolio. Both have previously worked as UX designers on industry projects. At Design Lab, they investigate the human-centered design of emerging technology to improve people's lives. Tonight, they are going to talk about how to use design thinking as a UX designer. This talk introduces you to what it is like to be working as a UX designer using design thinking approach. They will take you through what is unique to design thinking and introduce you to some of the human-centered design methods used for creating digital products and services. Without further ado, I will give the floor to Martin and Lian to introduce themselves and share their view about design thinking. Okay, thank you everyone. When we talk about design thinking, um, we really uh, usually talking about using design methods uh, for problem solving. Um, and uh, design thinking in a way gives us a toolbox of methods that we can choose from as designers. Now let's look a little bit at what this means to design a solution to a problem, to come up with a solution, develop a solution um, for a specific design problem. There's usually some sort of process, and um, I'm sure you're all familiar with um, what that process might look like. Um, uh, you're probably practicing that yourself, and you might have read about different ways of how this can be, how this can be done. So it's usually some sort of um, path or like a journey, maybe that we're taking to arrive from the problem at the solution. Um, and the different ways of how we can look at that. So one way of looking at it is that. We, in order to come up with a solution, we need to learn everything that we can about the problem. Um, then we uh, come up with some um, prototypes, maybe, of what the solution might look like, which is um, the part where we're making things, and then we're testing that. And that's how we get to a solution. But of course, that's not a um, simple linear process with just doing those three steps once. Uh, but as you're probably uh, aware, um, that's a process that needs to be done iteratively. And so one of the key principles of design thinking is this idea of iteration and doing things quickly and multiple times. Um, often we also use this phrase um, to fail often and fail early um, because the, the quicker we discover what's not working, the quicker we can build on that and learn from that and improve our solution. So it's through this idea and this principle of iteration that we actually ultimately come up with better solutions at the end by using design thinking. Another way to look at this is that um, we have these different phases or stages that we go through when we are um, going through this journey from, from uh, moving of moving from a problem to a solution. Um, but again, it's it's not necessarily a linear process where we know exactly what a solution looks like. Um, if if that if it would be that simple, then we wouldn't need designers. We wouldn't need design thinking. Um, but unfortunately, the reality often looks more like this. So we might think we are on the right path, but we actually find ourselves being completely lost and going in a direction where we are not actually moving closer to solutions, but we have to actually backtrack um, and find um, find different ways of, of, of attempting the problem to solve the problem. And that's a strength of uh, design thinking, that it gives us the ability to do this. Um, it's also something that makes it very different from other scientific methods, where they're, they're very um, clear scientific, scientific um, pathways to arrive from a problem at a solution. 
And so as you're going through this journey um, and through this process, they usually start in a particular context, which is where the problem is situated. Um, so that could be, the context could be um, a, a, a living environment. If it's, for example, a smart home con uh, pro uh, solution we're working on, um, the context could be a, a vehicle if you're working on an autonomous vehicle solution. Um, and the context also includes not just the place, but also the people in that place and, and people that are involved in, um, in or have some sort of um, interest in that, in that place. Um, we then do research, which is uh, where we learn everything we can about that context. Um, and that drives the generation of ideas. So the better the research is, the better the ideas are that, that are developed. And then we are turning those ideas into concepts, again, using design thinking methods. Um, before turning those concepts into prototypes that we can test and that eventually make it into a product. Or in other words, um, Bill Buxton, who is a senior researcher at Microsoft, um, also talks about this idea of elaboration and reduction. So when we're starting, we're starting uh, with a very, at a very narrow point, a particular question maybe that, that captures the problem. Um, and as we go through this process um, of understanding the context and learning everything we can about the context and starting with the ideation process, we try to come up with as many ideas as possible. Um, so in a way, we are seeking opportunities um, for what the solution might look like. But at some stage, we also need to think about making decisions because otherwise we, can't, we, can't, we could keep doing that process forever and just coming up with more and more ideas. Um, but at some stage, we need to start identifying which ideas are actually valuable and ideas and, and um, ideas that we can take into our solution. And that's the reduction process. Where we're making decisions about what this final solution might look like. And we, we, we're narrowing down this um, large amount of ideas that we've generated through a design process to a particular focal point, a particular solution that addresses the design problem. Um, you are probably familiar with this diagram, uh, which is uh, referred to as a double diamond. It was uh, popularized, popularized by the UK Design Council. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a model that works quite well to capture what we also saw in the previous slide. But really, it, it talks about two different cycles. So um, it, as it, it highlights that we actually need to start by identifying the problem we are solving and better understanding the problem we are solving. Uh, because too often um, we jump too quickly to trying to fix that general problem we are given before actually questioning is that the right problem we are trying to tackle or is there maybe another underlying problem problem we have to tackle so this first diamond where we have um, again two these two bits of um, divergent thinking so broadening our perspective and convergent thinking which is the narrowing of perspectives leads us actually to the specific problem and maybe a reformulated a rephrased problem that we're trying to solve before we then again go into divergent thinking where we're coming up with ideas and then a phase of conversion thinking where we're prototyping those ideas into a specific solution or in other words the first diamond is really about finding the right problem that we are trying to address and the second diamond is about finding the right solution and so design thinking as i mentioned earlier offers us a, a toolbox um, of methods we can use to achieve achieve this but also it gives us an attitude of being comfortable with uncertainty um, for a time that's long enough that allows us to explore the different aspects of a problem area so you might have experienced that yourself in your own practice we often find ourselves in this beginning of the um, of this diagram and this messiness we, we're trying to work on a problem and, and we're trying to do research and there's all this information and all this data we're collecting and and it, it feels like there's no clear way out and so what's really what, what usually happens to human the human brain when we get stressed is we sort of like we're shutting down our creative thinking skills and, and we just can't find a way out and it's sort of like panic uh the deadline's tomorrow the client wants to see our results we're running out of money so all these things all these are factors that affect our ability to think creatively um and the advantage of design thinking and, and really learning design thinking um and embracing design thinking is that um, it gives us certainty that we will find a solution. And, and so it gives us certainty and the ability not to freak out essentially and to be comfortable with this messiness. And that in turn helps us to be more creative within this messiness, drawing on the right methods and tools to find solutions and to find, 
first of all, patterns and insights, and then turning those into clarity and focus. Another view of looking at, um, at this idea of design thinking is, is captured in this um, nice Venn diagram, which was published by IDEO, which, IDEO, which is a design agency um, in the United States. It's one of the uh, best, well, I guess, best um, or, or most well-known design agencies globally. And so they're talking about um, this idea that for an innovation to happen, we need to make sure we're addressing all these three values. So we need to understand the human values, which relate to usability and desirability. And that's usually the user experience design, the design thinking and the, um, the um, human-centered design focus. Uh, but we also need to make sure that um, whatever we're coming up with is viable. So there's a business model behind it. And it's also feasible so that we can actually build it technically. Um, if you're only able to address one or two of those factors, then the innovation is not going to be successful made of a really great idea and and maybe the technology is there and people really want it but maybe we can't actually sell it at a price where people would buy it and so therefore it's not viable for example but linking it back to the trends that leon introduced earlier and this idea from me to we and focusing on um on life-centered design and and also on on ethical considerations um we actually uh now in in our in our um uh, in the way we teach uh, design at our university, are increasingly emphasizing this idea that there's a force bubble that we need to consider, a force factor that is really important to consider, particularly in today's age, which is um, which is looking at the responsibility and and to use design methods to help us understand the environmental and ethical values. So that's sort of like the foundation for uh, on a very quick overview of of what design thinking is and what design thinking tries to capture. Um, and I'm going to hand back to Leanne to um, talk a little bit more about this idea of a human-centered design process. Okay. So I was just wondering what kinds of jobs you have and uh, what kinds of companies you might be working in. Um, perhaps you're in a company or a design agency that's very pro-design and all this, this kind of thinking is familiar to you and um, your clients uh, know it and appreciate it. Or perhaps you're in an organization or a company or maybe a technology software development company that um, uh, has different sort of attitudes um, to design or where you're one of a very large team and you may be having to try and advocate a little bit more for the role of design and design thinking in the work that you do so there's i'm sure you're in a lot of different uh positions um in your professions but um there's been a big shift over the last sort of you know five to ten years at least definitely last five years of i think this human-centered design process being much more accepted in a lot of different companies and organizations um, mainly due to the digitization of so many products and services and realizing that if you build the wrong product, like Martin was saying, um, it's going to be a really bad business case as well. So how do we go about actually um, creating products where we know we're satisfying a genuine user need? Um, and that's really the first step. So going back to understanding the, what that problem is, um, do we have the right problem? Um, how do we go about conducting user research so we can find out what our um, potential users or customers um, actually need. And in the kinds of methods that we teach, we, we draw on social science um, methods, such as um, conducting observation of what people actually do in their lives and their, and their workplaces. Um, we, uh, you can run interviews and surveys. You might ask people to keep diaries on, on, their, um, on their daily practices and so forth, so that you can actually uh, obtain some sort of in-depth understanding of um, what people do and, and where they face challenges or, and where are the opportunities to actually um, create um, new designs that serve something of value to those people. Um, so that's the first bubble there. Um, once you've established some sort of uh, needs and requirements, then we move into that phase of um, actually trying to come up with solutions and, and ideate, you know, ideate. So, um, Again, that's where your sort of creative lateral thinking can really come in. I mean, how do you um, make the step from um, a list of requirements to then thinking about what are possible concepts, solutions? Um, and if you're conducting user or human-centered design, 
the key thing is in every activity that you're doing that we try and retain or, or represent our users as much as possible. So um, there are the established techniques such as personas, um, which a lot of you may already use, um, which can help you do that to help keep the voice and the story of the user that you're designing for alive in your design process. Um, you can also use various techniques like role playing, um, scenario enactment, body storming and so forth to, to again, bring to life um, the needs um, and the uh, experiences of the users. Uh, there's also been a, quite a shift towards co-design. So you may be lucky enough to be able to involve um, or maybe you're working um, on a solution for a group of people um, or an organization um, that will actually use the product or service that you're designing. So you might be able to involve some of those end users directly in your designing work, which is in a way even better because then um, they are having a much more active say in the design process and, and the um, decision-making that's going on. Um, once you've got um, some form of concept, you can then build an interactive version, prototype it. Um, again, uh, in, in, our, in our courses that we teach, interaction design, human design courses, we, and I'll show you in a moment, in a few slides time, some of those um, classic techniques of using sketches and mock-ups and prototypes that help you explore and communicate um, potential um, manifestations of your design ideas. Um, and importantly, so that you can actually communicate with other people in the design team and the organization, your clients, and also um, uh, potential users. So um, uh, an important part of that iterative design process that Martin was talking about is that we're continually testing our ideas, testing um, our prototypes um, and evaluating those with as many people and stakeholders as possible as well until we feel like we've got to the point where we do have a product or service that could actually um, be deployed, built and deployed um, or released as a product. So at this stage, we had intended to show you a short video um, with, um, of interviews with designers in, uh, in, uh, in the industry. So um, interviews we did um, uh, here in Sydney. But I think because of the sound problem, Liana might skip that video also in just in half time. And maybe in the Q&A session, during the Q&A session, we can send, we can post a YouTube link um, where you can watch um, not just this video, but actually a series of videos online in your own time. So I'll just skip over this um, and, and jump to this um, case study, which is um, quite a well-known case study um, and from um, a, obviously a very large, um, and globally um, very um, uh, successful company. Um, uh, so you can see here the reactions um, uh, that uh, Facebook um, provides to the, uh, the users. Um, and um, this is this case study um, is based on an article that was published in the Wired magazine a few years back when the reactions first came out. Um, and um, we wanted to show this to sort of like highlight that this is a process, this idea of, of um, human-centered design is a process that is used by um, large corporations like Facebook, for example. So they um, originally, um, if you are a Facebook user, um, and if you remember, they were originally using um, only a like button on Facebook. So the only um, option that, that users on Facebook had was to, to like their post. Um, and a lot of users were calling for this like button. So they were asking, um, sometimes someone might post something that is sad and, or, or they disagree with them. So they, they want to do this thing else than a like. Um, but Facebook didn't want to just have a dislike button uh, because it might actually, in fact, um, encourage cyberbullying, for example. Um, and so instead, they embarked on this research journey and were trying to understand what sort of emotions do our users want to express on Facebook? Um, and they went out and studied all the posts in the network and they um, looked, for example, at stickers that people were using in the posts to post um, their emotions and they were capturing all of that and collating all of that. They also talked to an, um, an expert in an American, American university um, to get um, someone who's studying um, uh, cognition and emotion. Um, and, and based on that, they identified quite a number of emotions um, which were way too many to actually show on a Facebook page. So they then reduced it to those six different emotions. 
that we now have on Facebook. And you can you can see that they actually went through quite an iterative process also where they, they kept changing the way they looked and they tested them with different um, different groups of people um, and um, went through quite a lengthy process of, um, of rolling this out also in stages. So rather than rolling it out to all the users at the same time, they rolled it out to um, in small countries first, for example, collected feedback from the users and then again iterated on the design. Um, and it might seem like a very small thing to design these reactions, but it's actually quite significant, um, was quite a significant change to Facebook and also quite a sensitive change because of the potential issue of how users would use this to promote posts or to respond to posts. Um, so there are a lot of um, levels that to consider and they came up with these final emotions um, that, and also added an animation to further demonstrate um, what those emotions represent um, before rolling it out then across their entire network. But where do we start? So when we are starting with, um, with this uh, process of, of coming up with ideas and, and exploring ideas a bit further, um, usually we really start with sketching. Um, it's something that is very easy and very simple to do. Um, and there's also, it's also important to realize that, that anyone can sketch. So often we have students who um, are a little worried maybe and say, well, I'm not very good at sketching um, or drawing, but it's, it's quite important to realize um, that it's not, it's not about how, how good we are at sketching um, and that really any um, sketch can help us to think through an idea. Um, and even something like the Facebook um, reactions, for example, would have started as, an, as a sketch initially. Um, or a series of sketching to test out the different different initial ideas uh, by the design team. Um, so here you can see um, one of uh, an example for a sketch um, that is from a class that um, Leanne was teaching here at the University of Sydney um, that explored um, the uh, different ideas of using digital um, system, digital um, digital solutions in a skate park. Um, so in, in this case, for example, the idea was that while you're riding a skateboard, um, the skateboard might actually perform some, some sort of soundtrack. And that was represented through this uh, quick sketch, uh, which really is a storyboard, actually. Um, and the storyboard actually allows us not just to explore an idea through a sketch, but to explore the interaction between people and a potential solution by sketching out this story. So it's very powerful because it doesn't focus on the details, like we can't even see the mobile phone screen, for example, here. It doesn't matter what the mobile phone screen looks like, uh, what buttons are on there, what color the buttons are. It's more about how do people connect with these solutions that we're designing. Um, of course, we can also use sketching to design specific details of a screen design um, before we start building it, for example, as a digital version using digital tools. Um, this is from a project that I worked on a few years back, um, where we just explored different ideas for what a particular application might look like. And again, it, really anyone can sketch. So I think anyone would be able to do this sort of sketch to this level um, in this level of detail. Um, and even so this is very simple and using stick figures, it's still very easy to follow what is happening here. Um, so it's easy to follow this storyline, this narrative, and again, to understand how, what are the important directions that people have with the products that we're designing. And so I'll hand back again to Leanne here to talk a bit more about the, the next step, or one of the next steps that follows on from, from sketching, um, which is prototyping. Okay. Um, so yes, uh, sketching and prototyping uh, are some of the key um, methods I think in a designer's toolkit. And um, I think they're the ones that are, are incredibly powerful because they allow you to um, make tangible or material your ideas, um, especially prototypes. Um, you know, if you can start to actually create um, uh, two-dimensional or three-dimensional models or visualizations, or if you're doing things with sound, um, it can be sound as well. Um, prototypes that people can actually see, sense, feel, um, interact with, manipulate and so forth. Um, it's a very powerful way of conveying your ideas um, um, to 
um, potential users that might be interested in them. So um, we teach a whole range of different uh, types of prototyping techniques. So some, a lot of them are low fidelity or the mock-up type of techniques where um, we might create things on a computer and then we can animate, for example, um, what this, um, what the visuals might look like. For example, this example here from a student project where they were using um, uh, the technologies were like motion sensors, but then they were able to program um, these visual lighting effects um, for a public outdoor space. So they had a whole um, artistic concept that was underlying this, but um, in the early stages, um, you know, we want to know, well, what does this look like? What does it, um, how does it behave? Those kinds of questions. Um, what's, how does the user experience this kind of um, um, system over time? So how does it change? How does its um, lighting effects change? Uh, what's the narrative perhaps that's being conveyed through um, this concept? Um, and if you as a designer can actually communicate um, those ideas um, in different forms, then you're going a long way to um, helping actually develop and um, make sure that the, the final um, solution is one that's going to work effectively in the context that it's designed for as well. There's another slide. Yeah. Um, this is another example of um, a student project that went on to do actually a PhD with me. Um, the student was very interested in wearable technologies um, to help children um, that were, uh, in, this, in this instance, actually um, uh, had uh, an autism um, condition and had trouble um, you know, socialising with people and processing their emotions. So this um, has a bunch of different types of prototypes you can see there. We can see there's some Arduino electronic, really pad electronics in there with a bunch of sensors. Um, there's a desktop um, application and a mobile app as well. Not all of these are working necessarily, um, but um, in terms of uh, designing the interfaces and um, simulating the kinds of interactions and behaviors. You can do a lot of things um, with various kinds of um, prototyping tools these days. And again, as you would probably know, some of those tools um, uh, you can then um, put out to your test users as well to evaluate and get feedback on. This is uh, the last example, um, which is, as you can see here, it's a large scale public display. And it has a gamified interface on it um, that was intended to um, uh, help uh, collect uh, power um, to help charge people's phones or other devices um, through the person. You can see there's two um, pads there on the ground. Um, they actually collect kinetic energy if you step on them. So if you, for example, jump on them or run on them, you generate kinetic energy, which is then meant to charge up um, this uh, particular system um, through this gamified interface. So actually one of my PhD students um, did uh, design this, uh, went through a whole design process with it, um, but didn't actually test it in this final environment, but we got very close. So you can see in terms of prototyping, we could do a lot of things in the lab. We could test the physical interaction, how people would use their bodies in space, um, how they would relate to the size of the display um what the kind of um, interactions were on that interface and so forth so there's a lot you can do with prototyping um, before you actually build the real thing which could involve a lot more um costs and money and equipment um that you might not um you know you want to make sure that you they're the right things to spend the right money on so prototyping um is an incredibly important um part of the whole human-centered design process And we wanted to also um, talk a little bit about this idea of reframing because um, while I, um, sketching and prototyping are sort of like really important methods to to think through what your ideas might look like, um, as I said earlier, it's also important to, before we start designing um, what the idea might look like, what the solution might look like, to really question and, and reassess the problem we're working on. Um, and um, as we find in design, uh, the first problem is not often the real problem. So there's often an underlying problem um, that, uh, that we need to understand in order to address the problem we're given. And so reframing is a method um, and it's, it's one, of, um, one of the methods we also use um, when we teach design thinking and use experience design 
here at the university that allows us to um, to um, do this and it actually gives you a structure for how you can reframe a particular problem. Um, and um, there's this great story that illustrates really nicely what, what we mean by reframing the problem. So in 1959, a British industrialist called Henry Kramer um, put out a price for um, the person or the company that could build a human-powered plane uh, that could fly a figure eight around two poles um, that were one mile apart. Um, so no motor, no engine, just using human power. Um, and for 17 years, um, many, many companies um, and big teams of engineers, aeronautical engineers, tried to tackle the challenge and to win the prize money. Um, which I think at the time was 50,000 uh, British pounds. Um, and so for 17 years, the price was unclaimed because the, um, the teams that worked on it invested all of the money and all of the time into finding this one solution, building this human-powered plane that can fly figure eight around two poles. They then tried it and it didn't work and they had run out of money, had run out of time and out of resources and had to give up. Until 17 years later, um, an aeronautical engineer and, and also a well-known entrepreneur at the time came across this challenge. Um, his name was Paul McCready. And he realized that the actual problem he had to work on was to build a plane that he could quickly rebuild within hours. So instead of trying to address this first problem of building the human-powered plane, that could fly this figure eight. He focused on how can we build a plane that is really lightweight and that we can crash quickly and then rebuild if we, if it doesn't work. And so he and his team would often fly the plane several times a day and rebuild it several times a day until they came up with the solution um, at the end to this process, which was to build a plane that was very lightweight and flying very slowly. So apparently that was the solution that allowed them to then solve the challenge. And to show you another example um, where many of these methods we just discussed and also reframing is being used, we wanted to talk about a student project. Um, so this was a project that some of um, my students um, did in my class, in one of my classes a few years ago, where the challenge was to look at how can we stop littering in cities? Um, and again, the students were um, we're first of all using research methods to understand um, the context, to learn everything about the context. Um, and as you can see here, they were using sketching to capture some of the research. So we can also use storyboards very effectively to capture the observations we make about people's current behaviors. And for example, here they could identify that people don't deliberately litter, but they're sort of somewhat careless and therefore cause littering in the city, which has huge um, huge consequences, not just in terms of money the city has, invest, has to invest into cleaning up our streets, but also um, in particular in cities like Sydney, um, the, the, any rubbish that goes on the road might end up in the ocean. They are then used reframing to think about, okay, what if rather than finding people for doing the, right, the wrong thing, we actually reward positive behavior by using gamification. And so they captured this idea as a very early idea, um, again, using sketching and a storyboard. Um, so here you can now see a storyboard used to, uh, to explore what a future solution might look like. Um, and, and so this idea that they came up with was that maybe we can allow people playing a game like Tetris by putting rubbish into the bin. Um, they then also created a mock-up as a sort of like a very early stage visualization of, of, of the concept, what the concept, concept might, might look like of, of this interactive bin that is like a game and, and what it would look like in the, for example, here at, um, in Sydney, in our harbor. Um, and then they, they also built a prototype um, using, um, using LEDs that they found in um, in uh, uh, our lab. I think the video is not playing, but you can see the prototype there. Um, it has LEDs around the bin and it was actually somewhat functioning. Um, it was using a technique called Wizard of Oz, um, which is a technique where you're simulating some of the behavior in a way so that it looks to the user like the prototype is actually working. It's a very, very effective technique. We then actually got some money from the city of Sydney to build um, this as a, as a um, fully working prototype for a light festival here in Sydney 
And here you can see some of the students working on the prototype. And then at the, at the last image, you can see the um, gamified tetrabin um, in the, installed in the city of Sydney. So that's an actual image of the installation. And this is actually an example where the students went through this whole process I showed you earlier, um, arriving at a prototype, but then even going further and going to that step of creating a product. Um, and so uh, Stephen Bai and um, Eric Chan, uh, you can see on this further, um, got then funding to go to New York and, and st uh, start working on this business idea and actually develop a commercial version of this thing, which you can see in this photo. Um, and then I have offices in New York, in Shenzhen in, uh, and in Sydney, um, and they're working on a number of urban interaction design projects. So the BIN was sort of like the first project, but then I started a whole business around this idea of urban interactive furniture. So hopefully it shows you a little bit of, um, gives a bit of an idea of um, how we can use the different methods, design thinking methods as part of a whole um, journey of coming up with, a, with ideas, solving a problem, developing prototypes, and possibly even turning that into a product. Um, and you can use the same methods and the same way of working and thinking, whether that's designing a tetrapin or like Leanne showed earlier, whereas if that's designing a wearable interface, sensors that you wear in your body and it connect with an app, or whether it's uh, designing a website or designing a mobile app. So you can use the same process and the same steps in different projects. So we wanted to end um, our talk by um, uh, showing you a few, pointing you to a few resources um, that are available um, uh, to learn more about design thinking in UX. And I'll hand back to Leanne to introduce um, this section. One of the uh, things um, we're very uh, pleased of that we've produced out of the Design Lab um, work in our teaching and research is actually this book called Design Think, Make, Break, Repeat, a handbook of methods. And um, Martin's actually uh, led this project, um, but it was a, a whole group of um, our colleagues that have been teaching in our design programs over the last um, few years um, that came together and um, uh, developed all these methods of sort of design thinking, user-centered design, um, design innovation methods that are in this book. What really um, characterizes this book and makes it, I think, different and actually becoming quite popular with a whole um, range of other teaching institutions and some companies as well, is that each method in there um, actually comes with a step-by-step -step set of activities um, so you can run it you know as a workshop for example with your colleagues uh, maybe in your own um, companies as well um, so step-by-step -step, um, activities and also with a bunch of uh, templates that you can fill in so it makes it really easy to um, learn how to use how to apply these methods and then to use them um, in groups so both in in design education but also in design practice you can use these sort of things so for example brain writing there is a form of creative lateral thinking which gets you to generate as many ideas as possible but it's done in a very structured way um, things like the body storming um, again um, if you're wanting to bring to life or uh, role play or enact um, different sorts of scenarios again um, there's a set of steps and uh, that you can follow that We've basically, like, I guess, developed and trialed and tested in our, um, in our design education courses as well. So the book um, is available uh, online. You can buy it online uh, in hard copy. Um, there's also a companion website, um, which you can just actually jump onto now. And uh, I believe all the templates are there on that website or for some of the, some of the uh, methods as well. And um, another resource that we wanted to um, highlight um, is a free online course that we developed um, about uh, design thinking and especially about um, how to use design thinking methods for innovation specifically. Um, it's a course that we developed a few years ago um, and it is available through Coursera. So you can see the URL here. Um, it's called Innovation Through Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat. Um, you can see more videos of myself um, 
on that course on the course uh, about me talking about design um, you can uh, if you do that course you can hear um, me again talk about um, that example of the airplane for example the human powered airplane um, it's one of the examples to talk about um, but we also have lots of great interviews with um, industry practitioners in this course and a few um, exercises and, and interactive activities um, and some of our colleagues are also appearing in this in this online course as well um, so it's a five-week course that starts um, uh, throughout the year, different points throughout the year. Um, it's for free, um, unless you want the um, official Coursera certificate, then you can pay for that as well at the end. But you can also do the whole course for free. Um, and it has some great case studies from these three companies um, that you can see here on this slide. Um, we also just wanted to show you that um, we've got a number of programs, of course, that Leanne and I um, and, and our colleagues in the design lab are teaching at the University of Sydney. Uh, there are a number of undergraduate programs and also postgraduate programs, um, uh, both in interaction design and also in design innovation and strategic design. Um, and there are different versions and combinations available, like um, one and a half year options or two year options with uh, particular specializations. Um, but you can, of course, find all of this information on our university webpage as well. And you're also very welcome to um, drop us an email um, at any stage um, if you have any questions about anything we covered today. Um, and with that, uh, we'll come to the um, questions bit. And it's now your turn um, to ask us any questions you have, um, uh, whether it's about anything we discussed today or any other questions about um, design thinking, human-centered design, and user experience design. And I can see that chat has been very active, which is uh, really great. And I wish I would speak in Indonesian um, so I could um, follow this. Um, but maybe someone can translate any questions might have popped up in the chat. Um, thank you very much. And, and yeah, please, please ask us anything. Well, thank you so much. It was a really interesting like a talk that uh, Lian and Martin you had today. Uh, well, the chat was actually uh, we trying to translate uh, your talk so people can <laughs> understand better. I hope that it uh, it covers a lot of things that uh, people want to know. Uh, yeah, so this is a uh, this is a really interesting talk, and I would like to open opportunity for a discussion. But uh, perhaps uh, you probably uh, you probably are interested to know. But uh, in Indonesia, like uh, we usually like uh, for every meeting, we have a photo shot together. So <laughs> it is it is really probably not common in um, in in Australia. Uh, but uh, we gonna have like a photo shot together before the question and answer. So <laughs> I hope it's okay with you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so okay. everyone, yeah, everyone, if you can really open your video and that would be great. And then we're gonna take a picture together, but we only can take 16 of them. So wherever you are, because we are about 30 people. So wherever you are, can you please take a picture of you? And uh, we're gonna have a different variety of pictures and then we're gonna post it together. So let's do it like um, if you can uh, open your video, let's take a picture together. Uh, I'll do mine. Yeah, if you can do yours as well, smile. Okay, that's great. Um, so we're gonna have uh, we have about a five minutes of a question answer. But um, uh, anyone who wants to leave uh, by uh, seven thirty, that's fine. But um, if you don't mind, uh, perhaps like we're gonna have about uh, another five minutes for a question and answer. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna. If you are interested to ask question, can you just write on the chat forum, or maybe you can just talk on the mic. So you can. There's one question already. I noticed in the. Yes. In the chat. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's a good. really Go good ahead. question about good, good. innovation. Are you happy for me to ask to to jump in? Um, yes. So maybe please. I'll start, and then Leanne, yeah. you can you can um, add anything. Um, so it's. Um, it's uh it's actually um I'll, sh I'll show you if i can find um i had to, i thought i had the book here i was a don't um 
have the book handy. Um, it's it's based on um, it's based on a great book. There we go. That came out. Um, uh, can you see this? Yes. Yeah. So that book came out last year. Um, it's by a UX designer based in the States, um, United States called Mark Montero. Um, he's written a number of books, but in this book, he specifically talks about the many things that, that we do as designers that have a, have a large impact on society. Um, and so the um, examples that he talks about in here are, um, for example, Uber and the way Uber designs the products. Um, also Facebook is an example. Um, in terms of like how they are um, having a very negative impact on societies. Um, there, there has been a big controversy that Facebook potentially helped for, or, or influenced the uh, last US uh, presidency uh, election um, and, and that they also support or contribute to the distribution of fake news via Facebook um, and that they're not really taking the responsibility seriously as, um, as the designers of a platform like Facebook, that they would need to have some mechanisms in place to make sure that they're not becoming places where people are being harassed. Um, harassed. Uh, Twitter is another example where um, there are a lot of white uh, supremacists there that are active um, and bullying, uh, bullying other people on the platform, um, promoting hate speech, for example. And so those are all, and, and, and the designers of these platforms unfortunately say, well, we are not responsible for that. We only design this platform. Um, and, and so what Mike talks about is that we as designers need to understand that there's a consequence of the things we're designing for. Um, and, and that we need to understand that impact and take that impact seriously. Um, and one of the problems actually, it's really interesting. One of the problems he points out is that many of the, the things that happen, for example, um, the problems that Twitter has and the problems that Facebook has um, and also Uber is because they usually started by a small group of a white male um, people. And so there is no diversity in that room from the, from the beginning. And so therefore they never, never consider the perspectives from other maybe marginalized communities um, and, and how they would interact with this platform and how that platform might affect their lives. Um, and so one way of addressing this, for example, is by ensuring a diversity in your design teams and ensuring you have different representation and different voices part of the design process. Um, the example of Uber is um, that, that they also developed this as a great platform to allow us to have a better taxi service, but it had huge implications in countries like India, for example, where, um, where people were renting cars to be able to Uber drivers, um, but then weren't able to pay back the debt um, for renting the car. And there were some instances of um, even uh, people committing suicide because of the, the money that they had um, lost and they just couldn't see a way out. Um, and so that's one side of that ethical considerations and that we need to understand as designers, how, how will people use the tools we're designing and what's the what's what's the worst possible thing that could go wrong and and what can we do as designers to make sure that's not happening the other side of that story is the environmental impact in, in particular because of global warming and climate change and and here in australia we had a had big bushfires last year for example uh, and early this year or summer um and and so like uh, like thinking about that impact of devices we design like phones for example um and and what impact those design um design products have on the environment and whether we can design them in a way so they use make more responsible and 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 more ethical use of um not just the materials but also how they are being uh, produced, for example, and whether there is any child laborers uh, or, or um, work involved in, in parts of the world where there are very inhumane conditions. Excellent. Uh, Martin, I think there's another question. How do you measure the ethical value? You can't really measure ethical value. You can only try to understand it. Um, and um, there are um, a few methods of, uh, of like for how you can do that. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, actually, we are currently working on the second edition of our book um, and, and we will include some methods for understanding ethical values in that book. Um, so there's one method, for example, that is called value cartouches, 
Um, it's a method that one of my colleagues developed, one of our colleagues developed, and it allows us to understand the different ethical values of different um, stakeholders and then considering those in the design process. Um, but really, there's no way to measure it, really. It's a good question, very interesting question. It's a very, um, it's very complex to understand ethics, um, which is why it's also very, very difficult to do, and which is why often it's easier for companies not to do it. But it's increasingly important um, to do it, and it will also be increasingly a way to be different in the industry. So if you're able as a designer to provide that ethical value, that will also help with getting investors and getting clients because people are looking out more and more for products and solutions that are ethically um, ethically valuable. Okay, thank you. I don't you. know, Leon, whether you wanted to add anything or have any, whether you wanted to add any perspectives to that. Um, yeah, it's a very challenging uh, topic, actually. And I think there's also um, the whole system of cultural values, um, even like within one country or one, you know, race of people, you may have a, a strong culture that has a certain value system. Maybe you create some um, product that suits that culture, but when you then transpose it into a different culture, I think that's when you really start to get a lot of um, issues as well. So yeah, depending on whether you've got a global product that you're going for, yeah, how does it, it's, yeah, it's, it's really complicated. Uh, I know there are a bunch of, um, I've seen quite a few ethical design toolkits pop up yep. um, over the last couple of years. So you can even just Google some of those and um, other groups, other research groups or um, companies are sort of developing the, their own sort of um, toolkits now around ethics and design. Um, so there's a bunch of things out there, which I guess you could start to, um, uh, you know, incorporate into your own design um, methods as well. Yeah, and, I think it's interesting think... though, like, I mean, designers, I mean, the role of a designer and um, how much impact you can have within an organization is an interesting one. Um, so whether you can really, uh, you know, advocate for um, more diversity and values within the organization you work in is an interesting question. I was just going to add, it's also becoming more and more important mm -hmm. because of the um, emergence of artificial intelligence and machine learning, where of course there are a lot mm -hmm. of ethical questions involved. Um, and, and so again, we as designers in a way have to make these decisions because we come up with a design solution that then are being built. Excellent. I think let's move on to the next mm -hmm. question by Koryul Koirul Pravinagara. Oftentimes we work with different stakeholders who may well not from design backgrounds and mm -hmm. work in a tight schedule. Are there any mm -hmm. steps from the design process that we may omit or leave for the sake of the project completion? What's your take on this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. Um, so, um, I think, it's not, yeah, it's not directly connected to whether the clients or the stakeholders are from a design background or not. I think the challenge is more that, sorry, Leanna was jumping in. Mm. The challenge is more, I think, the tight schedule. Um, and I mean, often I, in my lectures uh, with my students, I often talk about the, the fact that, of course, iterating is good and important, but at some stage you're running out of money or time or both. So it's also about knowing when, when you have um when you have sort of like arrived at a solution that um satisfies the original goals um it's it gets better with experience so rather than omitting or, or leaving out things i think it's important for us to build up experience um and by doing training programs that's one way of building up this experience because then you also get better at choosing the right methods because it's um it's not again it's not about omitting methods or leaving them out it's more about choosing the right methods that are the important methods to get you to the solution um, but it's also the other side of that from my perspective is also that it's also about educating the client and mm -hmm. um and that's important because um as as um 
as it's uh, in, stated in this question, the clients often don't have a design background and they don't understand the value of this design background. Yeah. Um, so it's we always, as designers, we always educate our clients <laughs> and um, and have to sort of like in a way convince them about the value of going through this process. Mm. I think that's a good answer, uh, Martin, because I think from our experience as well, um, the role of the facilitator, the people who knows about the process and everything is very important, especially if the, some companies, they, okay, let's just do the design thinking by the book and everything. And they got stuck because, oh, the math doesn't actually work and everything like, but with the experienced facilitator, actually the companies can do a lot in a shorter time, less uh, trial and error and everything can help uh, with their goal to achieve whatever the product they have and everything. So that, that's a good point yeah. as well. Yeah. And and, so and something that is also very important for us to realize as designers, and again, something that, that Mike talks about in his book, is that because um, he has a design shop, um, a design agency in the US, and they say on the website, when you hire us, we are working for your clients. We are work no, sorry, we are working for your users and your customers. We are not working for you. And that's really important, <laughs> yes. right? So. Because as a client, they might say, oh, I only have this much money or these are my goals. But as, if you hire me as a designer, I'm not working yeah. for you and your goals. <laughs> I'm working for the goals of your users and your customers. And yeah. I think that's a really important and interesting mind shift. It's very important as well. Yeah, that's good. It's a good point. Let's move on to the next one uh, by Reza. Uh, when to use design thinking and not to use it? Also, what is the difference between design thinking and human-centered design methodology? So, do you want to have a go, Leon, or do you? <laughs> I'll go. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question because I think it depends on what um, period in time you're referring to. So, um, we've done a talk before, Martin and I, where we did um, go through some of the history of design thinking. Um, and in fact, the design lab where we work at the university um, has a very strong um, history of researching design cognition. Um, how designers go about um, doing what they do and how they think, which is the original meaning of design thinking. And what's now known as design thinking, I think, is really what used to be design methods. Um, so, you know, how do you do design? What methods do you use? So I think in the last decade, um, design thinking really through IDEO, um, the, the um, design company um, that were working also at Stanford, I think they really then sort of recoined the term design thinking as a human-centered approach to doing design of products. Um, and, then, and then since then, the last sort of decade, um, you know, there's been such a ferment of, of activity um, in that space. And every I've observed that uh, I think every company that you come across now basically comes up with their own version of user-centered or, you know, experience design, um, user experience design, design thinking. Um, you, you probably had that experience if, you've, if you're working in a company that you've got your own sort of design approach, um, which if you take a step back and look at them in the abstract, they probably have a lot in common with a lot of the other approaches out there. Um, and again, I think it's, um, yeah, human-centered obviously is um, prioritizing the human in, in the loop. Um, but again, that was historically because um, there was so much technology and business-driven um, uh, innovations happening that were leaving out the human experience. But I think that's now been sort of balanced out in the last few years. So, um, but then you could also do design thinking, for example, where you weren't doing human-centered design. Uh, it's very much more about sort of making and uh, creative thinking and so forth and working with materials and stuff like that. So there are different sort of flavors out there. Mm. Mm. Don't know if that helps rather. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very helpful, Leanne. And I think um, it's just a coincidence that yesterday I deliver a course for design thinking and then this is similar question, when to use design thinking and not to use it. And then uh, when I look back into the history of design thinking, look at the the rapid prototyping and everything, it turned out that one thing is very important is that the wicked problems. So usually the we have wicked problems and we 
try to solve that with design thinking. So that will be very useful. But if we have the problem like a puzzle problem, uh, where we are, we know that there'll be a one good answer for it, right? Mm-hmm. And then then we just have to shuffle and everything because all the puzzles basically have have one right solution, right? And that that the design thinking has no value in it. You can use any other method, but for a lot of uncertainties, uh, like for example, trolley problem in the wicket problem. Let's say, let's say you have a problem with the automated uh, driver a vehicle. Uh, if if you have to choose whether you uh, the vehicle should hit five person or one person that you love, those kind of things with the ethical issues, those kind of very complex problem where there are a lot of intricate issues, interrelated problems. So that's the value of design thinking because there are a lot of uncertainties. And it's very difficult for us to learn from the past experience, like this COVID-19 solution, those kind of things. So that's that's the thing that I think may be very, very useful for design thinking to be yeah. used. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, uh, I would also say that design thinking is both a tool set and also a mindset. Um, and as a tool set, we have all these methods we can use. Um, as a mindset, it's something that becomes very inherent to everything we do. And so that's that's also how it um, it almost then doesn't matter. It's not a question of whether we use it or not. It's something that becomes part of everything we're doing, and and being like I said earlier, being really comfortable with uncertainty and messiness and complexity, and and making iteration part of everything we do, um, and and, um, and so yeah, it becomes really mindset. So it's, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you. So let's move on to the next one. So this is similar. Samsung and Sandy, they asked about the difference between design thinking and design sprint. Okay, so this this has been going on for the last few years. I think it will be good to hear uh, your take about this. Um, I mean, it's the second question is answering it in a way. A design sprint is a design framework. Um, and it, it uses design thinking methods, but it's a particular framework that is being used um, in particular in agile development. Um, so it's 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 a yeah it's a terminology that is used in in the industry in some companies. Um, it, and design thinking has also design sprints, even if you're not talking about it. So the fact that you're doing iteration, that's also you could say that that's a sprint, but um, design sprints are used in a particular in the software development industry so i know the big industry big software development companies um use that term and use this idea of an agile development um but it's it's really a, a um it derived from this idea of human-centered design and design thinking and then put into like a design framework that makes sense for a software company okay that's my perspective Okay, yeah, um, it's it. Can I also yeah, say, um, not so much about the sprint stuff, but I think one of the powerful things that is, um, uh, as designers, if you're developing your ability to um, visualize and communicate any kind of aspect of your design or the problem space, I think that's a really uh, powerful tool to have because, um, even if you're working, say, in an agile methodology in a um, software development company, I actually used to teach software engineering. So, um, you know, the, the code is king, it's still the code base that they're working in. And it can be really hard to get people to work at those sort of intermediate levels of abstraction and representation where you can communicate concepts. So you can communicate key ideas uh, to other people that are not like coders, for example. So. I think that's where um, some of the design thinking methods really come become very valuable uh, because they they assist as communication tools between diverse groups of people. But you know, um, there's that term in in um, HCI research called the the boundary object um, that you know you might be familiar with, um, a form of representation that allows multiple stakeholders of diverse backgrounds to actually um, you know come to some sort of common understanding about something. It's a something that you can talk about from different perspectives, but um, form some kind of consensus around. So, um, yeah, in my mind, um, design thinking is not just about coming up with the best solution, but it's also about how you can communicate um, different aspects of, um, of the problem, the solution, um, people's points of view, et cetera, to diverse audiences as well. So, um, 
because sometimes half half of the work is actually convincing others of the value of what you're doing and your and your and your concepts, your solutions. Mm. Okay. Thank you. I think mm. those are all the questions. Um maybe if there is someone who wants to ask the last question, um that will be maybe mm. a minute or two. Anyone else? Well, everyone is thinking um, to add to that last comment from Leon, um, the last point, um, every company has their own design methodology in a way. And what we hear from the companies where our students go to work is that they value um, the, the mindset and the creativity and, and then the knowledge of methods that our students have. But really the students anyway have to learn once they start working in a company have to learn whatever framework that company is using on the job. Um, so doing a course um, prepares you with, um, you said, so like like um, a general understanding and having a solid understanding of design um, and and the different methods, but you have to keep learning is what I'm trying to say. Um, and mm -hmm. so when you're applying for jobs, for example, or you're working with a client and what they want to do is design sprints, my recommendation would be to um, jump online or buy a book about uh, agile design lots of great resources out there for free even online um, and get upskilled in that area so that you're then more competitive in the in the job interview um, and if you go for another job they might have a different use a different language um, and it's important um, that you have some sort of solid understanding like a foundation um, and better you call it design thinking or human-centered design design sprints doesn't matter at the end of the day as long as you can exactly explain what you're doing and, and what what you're talking about um, yeah. that's a very good point martin and then i think with that i think we conclude to today's uh, meetup uh, thank you for coming we really appreciate you coming in sharing your knowledge and expertise and guys if you are interested to study in sydney uh, university of sydney you may see them, so you can <laughs> you can register and also for the days. Thank you very much for the tip for the online course, the MOOC, and also the book. Uh, it's been very useful. I think a lot of uh, people here will start uh, looking on the website and see what they can learn from you and a lot of things. So I would like to thank you as well for everyone who comes today and stay up till now, even though we are a little bit behind, maybe <laughs> a little bit longer, but that's fine because it's quite exciting. It's very exciting tonight. And thank you, Martin and Lian. Hope to see you oh. again next time. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Thank you both, Josh and yeah, Eunice yeah. and everyone. Uh, yeah, it's been really great to talk to you tonight. Yeah, I agree. Thank you yeah. for the invitation and thank you everyone for joining and, and spending your time with us. Thank you. Have, thank a, you. Good, have a good night, everyone. Have a good night. Yeah. Bye. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.